Hello, hello. Welcome to Crash Course Fashion. I'm your host, Brittany Sierra. And on this podcast, we explore the multifaceted and often complicated reality of building and scaling a purpose-driven brand. In each episode, we get into the nitty gritty of what it truly takes to build a fashion brand that prioritizes people, planet, and profit. And true to the name, in each episode, we share crash course lessons and actionable takeaways that you can apply to your sustainability strategy right now. In today's episode, I'm chatting with someone who I really admire, and that is Carrie Ellen Phillips. Carrie is the co-founder of the global strategic marketing and communications agency, BPCM. BPCM has worked with the world's most iconic fashion, beauty, and wellness brands for more than two decades. Committed to creating business opportunities that reverse human impact on the planet, Carrie is responsible for spearheading the development of BPCM sustainability practice, which focuses on helping consumer-facing businesses not only achieve their sustainability goals, but maintain growth and profitability. Carrie and BPCM's leadership in sustainability are globally recognized across all categories for their effectiveness in being able to create business strategies that actually work. Oh, and did I mention that Carrie is an advisor to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and a fashion ambassador to the United Nations U.S. Coalition on Sustainability? Oh my gosh, that was a mouthful, but yep. In addition to being a frequent speaker, moderator, and guest lecturer, Carrie is an advisor to a long list of innovative organizations that I won't mention right now, simply for the fact that I'm trying to keep this episode to under an hour. But suffice it to say, Carrie is an all-around badass. Can I say badass on here? I don't know, but she's a badass. I'm incredibly honored and excited for you to hear this conversation with Carrie and I about business, marketing, and sustainability. So let's get into it. Here's my conversation with Carrie. You've been in the fashion industry for over two decades now. How has the industry changed during that time? Oh my gosh, it's really hard to look at anything in the industry that hasn't changed other than, quite frankly, our supply chain. We're recording this right now at the um, end of September. Mm-hmm. And right now, typically, I would have been in, I don't even know, Milan or Paris. Um, I would have been gone for a month, basically. It would have been New York Fashion Week, then London Fashion Week, then Paris, then Milan, and then Paris. And it w- you had to go. You had to go. It was important. That was important. Um, you know, when I first started in the industry, I'm going to make myself sound like a dinosaur, but you know, there were no, um, there were no digital lookbooks. Um, you know, some editors didn't have the email yet. Um, you were, it was picking up the phone. It was creating relationships. It was calling people. And those people are still the people that I have relationships with today. And we were all, um, you know, assistants together. And, and now we're all sort of in uh, much higher places in our field, but you know, everything felt different, you know, especially the, and, and it really has to do with the internet. And again, I sound like a dinosaur, but it really has to do with the internet. It has to do with the exchange of information. Social media was not a thing. Mm-hmm. I discovered Facebook when my brother, who was much younger than me, was in college. And he was like, oh yeah. And I was like, oh, am I supposed to be on this? He goes, whoa, no, whoa, dude, you're way too old. I was probably 28. You know what I mean? Like he was just like, oh, oh no, 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 not for people like you. Um, there was no Instagram. There was no Snapchat. Twitter was there, but people didn't really know how to use it. It was, you know, it was a very, very different time. Forget about like now, you know, everything gets fed to us through our phones. This is where we shop. This is where, you know, there were no apps. Um, I had a flip phone for a long time. Um, and that was like the height of technology. So I would say we have, um, that has, for better and for worse, totally and completely changed the industry. But what hasn't changed is how we get our resources and then how we use those resources and turn them into clothing. Do you miss anything from those flip phone days and the days before Instagram and TikTok and all of that? Yeah, I think it's connection. Um, 
I think it's that idea of connection. The, the people that I um, used to pick up the phone and call, I can still pick up the phone and call because we had a relationship where um, we really, really knew each other, right? And we would joke with each other and we knew about each other's, you know, families and boyfriends and we would go out. That's how you got to know people is like, everybody worked really late. So you'd say like, let's go out for a drink after work and you'd go for one drink and it might turn into five or it might just be that one drink. And um, and it was the same when you would go away to the fashion shows because it was almost like being at summer camp. And so everybody was together and you created these bonds and so, and those bonds for me still exist. Um, and I see for the, for the team that works for me, you know, so often uh, Vanessa and Allie and I, my business partners, and I will say to the team, just pick up the phone and call people. And somebody actually had to take a side and be like, that offends a lot of people. It's like now very, it's like, you know, some people feel that it's very presumptuous if you just pick up the phone and yeah, call them and don't warn them that you're calling them. And we're like, what? Yeah, because <laughs> like, it's not scheduled. So how dare you call me? <laughs> it's not scheduled, of course. And especially now with, um, you know, in kind of a post-COVID world, you know, uh, every five minute, like, hey, can I run something by you is a scheduled Zoom that takes like three days to schedule, you know? So it's, those things are, yeah. um, I do miss, um, I'm, I think it's really about connection. And I think um, not to say that you can't have connection, um, digitally and not to say that you can't have that people who are super digitally connected cannot have connection, but it's really, I think you have to be super intentional about those connections being, um, real and authentic rather than like, Oh, they liked my post. You know, that's different. That's different than kind of really knowing each other. I love that you bring up the importance of relationships because I definitely feel like I'm guilty of this. And this has been something that I've been thinking about I feel like relationships are very much transactional. Um, like speaking from the Sustainable Fashion Forum standpoint, we've had so many amazing speakers on the platform at our conference, but I don't feel like I have real relationships with the people that have been on our platform. It feels more like the conference is coming up, so we're emailing each other, or they have a project or something coming up, so we're emailing each other. But I don't really know my colleagues that are in the industry with me, and I really would like to change that. I mean, at the very least, the relationship can be more than just checking in when we want something. You know what I mean? But I think also we need to say that because of the lives we are leading, things are so incredibly busy and incredibly scheduled that, you know, let's also give ourselves some grace because, you know, where does one find the time? That is very true. Maybe you and I will just set this intention. But it's like, it's a great thing to just be able to reach out to somebody and be like, I was thinking about you. I've got nothing coming up. I was just thinking about you. Yeah. You're doing great. Like, tell me when, tell me what, what's happening and, you know, when can we FaceTime or whatever? Oh, we should totally normalize random check-ins. But actually, you know what? I was just thinking, what if you email someone and you're like, hey, I have nothing going on. I just wanted to say hello and see that you're well. Are they now going to be annoyed because you just put another email in their inbox and now they feel obligated to answer <laughs> And like now they have more that they have to go through. It's like, I don't know. Now, now I think you and I, after this call should have a, should have a discussion about whether or not we need to create like a normalized connection hashtag and like a bumper sticker and like, yeah, a let's do it. Let's do okay. it. Okay. <laughs> T-shirts, but they have to yeah. be sustainably made, you know, obviously sure. I know how to do that. Oh my gosh. I love it. Speaking of sustainability, how has that conversation changed over the years? Oh my God. It's really, I have to say, I mean, you know, you know, this is my favorite conversation to have. Mm -hmm. um, when I first started having this conversation, I think it was eight years ago, the amount of either glazed eyes or, okay, that's cool, but can we get back to what we were talking about? Or um, wait, can you please go back and explain this again? Or, you know, just people who hadn't even heard the word sustainability. And, and I often say sustainability is not a word that I love, but obviously mm -hmm. it's, a, it's one that helps us get into the conversation so that we can, so that we can change it. Um, and it's just been an incredible journey um, to being kind of on the fringes of, um, you know, simultaneously very much in the fashion industry and then working on the fringes, like, I helped Kelly Slater as he was starting Outer Known. And what he was doing was incredibly radical. And you had to sit and explain to people 
the business case for doing something like this and that this wasn't a charity, it wasn't a 501c3, that this is meant to become an actual business that is a profitable capitalistic enterprise that does things um, in a way that does no harm um, and that creates opportunity across the value chain. And so that used to be a conversation that I would have. And, and I almost felt like I was a professor or something, you know, it was almost like I was trying to engage students and now what's so incredible. And, and even with editors, you know, editors who were even interested in it, you always need to come to them with more information, better information. I, I'm a, I'm a deep nerd. So I love facts. I love data. And there's a lot of anecdotal information, um, in the fashion industry. And there is a lot of fact, but, but I think because we started from a place of a lot of anecdotal information, some of it still exists. And sometimes you find you you have to correct it, but yeah. less and less and less. I mean, there are so many incredibly intelligent journalists out there. There are so many engaged um, designers, retailers, um, innovators, people in the supply chain who are like, let's go solve this problem. We have so much opportunity. Let's go solve this problem Mm -hmm. that it is like, I wake up every day, like, and and I just can't wait. Like, I'm so, I'm so excited. You know, I was doing my school drop-off with my kids this morning and talking to one of the innovators I work with who is about to close a funding round. And she's telling me all about like the really exciting person who just signed on and, and, you know, talking about due diligence. And I just think like, oh my God, I get to do this every day. I really love that. The fashion industry is, it's so messed up, honestly. And the problems are so interconnected and so nuanced. It can get real dark, real fast and really overwhelming. But I think you're right. I mean, I think that what's exciting is that there are so many people and brands and companies that are getting involved in the conversation. And Regardless of if they're getting involved for business reasons or because they truly want to make a change, it's exciting that there are so many players in the game now, right? And that we have so many more people to pass the ball to. And that's exciting. Yeah. And when we think about the future of fashion and the future of our world, really, for that matter, it's so exciting to see that younger generations are engaged interested and excited about sustainability and climate change and and all of the different issues that are sort of plaguing the fashion industry right now. It's amazing to see that they're so excited and engaged and want to see true change. Yeah. I do think it's really interesting, though, when we think about like Gen Z and fast fashion and sort of the paradox there where it's like all the reports and all the industry insights are saying that Gen Z deeply cares about sustainability, but then, you know, they what they're actually buying doesn't necessarily align. And I mean, there are so many reasons for that, right? And a couple of weeks ago, over on the Sustainable Fashion Forum's Instagram, we had a conversation about this with our community, which was amazing. I think that there were over 800 comments of people writing paragraphs explaining, you know, why they thought that this paradox existed. And of course, price came up. Of course, size accessibility came up. But I thought that it was really interesting that marketing came up or like a lack of marketing on the side of sustainable fashion. And so that really spurred me to want to have this conversation with you and actually brought me back to something that I had asked our community. I think it was back in 2017 um, about fast fashion and marketing and sustainable fashion. But before we dive into that, I would love to hear your thoughts on the Gen Z fast fashion paradox. That is like one of the things that fascinates me the most. The thing that I really love digging into is like, and it's the, it's this question that that is not answerable, mm-hmm. but it's really explorable, right? Like, they, I mean, overwhelmingly, Gen Z especially, millennials to to the greater extent say, you better respond to my values. And my values are environmental and all of that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So what I also want to say but that I find is interesting and I think is applicable, and there hasn't been a study that like graphs these two together, but um, we need to look at wages. Um, a lot of the times we talk about wage and supply chain, but if you look at the wages for Gen Z, um, I think they've only like in real dollars, they've only gone up like under, they've gone up like under 10%. And in some cases, like as low as 2% from like the sixties or the seventies, it's, it's crazy. There's no, um, there has not been an increase in, um, prosperity 
um, in that generation, but there is this increased expectation of um, how you look, how you present yourself, be your own brand, all of those things. So in fact, they probably do have these very highly held values. And at the same time, because they are social media native, there is an enormous pressure to um, show up in a certain way, be your own brand. That's the only way you're going get, to get a job. That's the only way you're going to make money. That's the only way you're going to like create prosperity for yourself, right? So it's very kind of, um, I find Gen Z to be incredibly ingenuitive in that, in that way where they're going to like, you know, they might cobble three sort of jobs together and one of them might be something they're doing in their phone, right? And, and that's how they, that's how they make money. Whereas somebody from my generation was like, I'm going to go to work every day. I'm going to get there at nine. I'm going to leave at six and I'm going to get a paycheck and I'm going to, you know, and, and then I can budget and I can afford this and I can afford this. And it's a different, it's a different thing. And so we're yeah. still, um, if you look at fashion, fashion's being run by people my age being trying to sell to people who are, you know, much younger. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's, that's a digression, but I think it's an important one to continue to consider as we talk about um, because what I don't want is for Gen Z to be vilified for being the like, you know, you say one thing and then you do another, but like, we're yeah. not really providing you a whole lot of opportunities right. to like put your money where your mouth is in a lot of ways. Right. Right. Um, I think, you know, and, and then also there's the, there's the marketing of like, oh, buy your clothes and then just sell them. And then, you know, and then you can just put that money back in there. And so it's, it's interesting because what sustainability is represented as is, is many different things. And, and again, this is a, this is a complex ecosystem, right? And it's not just about the materials and it's not just about the wages and it's not just about the resale and it's not just about the um, fiber innovation. It's, it's, it's really about all of it. And um, through the lens of, of marketing, um, I think what's really interesting is there's a lot of deceptive marketing or there's a lot of marketing that is the assuaging of guilt, right? So not going to name any names, but like hyper fast fashion companies, there's a lot of them that have, um, first of all, they have, they're billion dollar companies and they have so much money to put toward marketing. Their marketing budgets are enormous. And how they choose to use that marketing budget is when I, when I sit with CMOs, it's about efficiency. It's about like, what is the spend I make that gets me the result I want in the most efficient way possible, right? Mm-hmm. That's not, and, and, and it's very difficult to get people to not even unintentionally greenwash in that situation. Right. Um, there are fast fashion companies who understand, and quite a few of them do, especially the public ones that, um, sustainability and environmental efficacy are really important to Gen Z. So what do they do? They put labels on these things that have like a leaf or a, this is a, this piece is from our, you know, eco offering or conscious offering. Right. And so that if I'm Gen Z, I'm not diving any, I'm probably not diving much further. I'm like, Oh, okay. That's a good option for me because this meets my values. Um, price point and price point. Exactly. Um, you know, it's really interesting. So my oldest daughter is 12 and I just came home from a trip and I saw that she had bought something from shine and Mm. I see, I am naming names on that one because I think I get to, but, um, (laughs) and she, and I, and I sat down and I, I like started sort of like steaming out of my ears and being like, Oh my God, I can't believe this just came to my house. And then I kind of sat down with her and I was like, Hey, so do you know anything about this company? She's like, no, but I saw this. It was really cute. And it came up on Pinterest and I really loved it. And like, I spent my own money on it and it was like, it was great. Cause I could afford it. Yeah. And I was like, okay, so I just want you to know that the people who work there, like if this sweater that you bought was like this price, you know, the person making that is probably the, this is a, this is a company that makes a ton of money. So I'm going to guarantee that the person who, you know, made this sweater probably did not get their value in terms of work. She was like, Oh my God, but they don't say that anywhere on the website. And I was like, well, yeah, of course. She was like, but I went on the product page. And she didn't say anything about it. I'm like, I know he's going to say like, we gave you I paid really crappy wages to my right. workers. So you right. could, you could buy this sweater for 
you know, right. <laughs> a small amount of money. So um, I think we are expecting, you know, one, one of the things I um, I'm a, I'm a big Paul Hawken fan and, and his book regeneration just came out two days ago. I got home from a trip last night and I was like, I'm like halfway through it. It was just like, I stayed up all night reading it. You know, and one of the things he talks about is one of my favorite topics in this, which is connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is, we have lost our connection to each other, where things come from, um, our relationship to the natural world. And, and that's why this is happening, right? Mm-hmm. This, that's, it is that disconnection in a macro sense. So then from a marketing sense, I think when you look at what should be viewed as your community, if you're a brand, when you start viewing them as consumers, yeah. you've lost the connection. It's funny. I remember when I was younger, my mom would always tell me these stories of when I was younger, blah, 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 blah. And when I was younger, blah, blah, blah. And I used to always just kind of look at her like, okay, well, it's great that that was like that when you were younger, but this is how it is now with me. So (laughs) it doesn't apply, you know, like I, I just did not get it. But I had my own experience with that last night. I was talking to my mom and, you know, I'm 31 now. And I was thinking about when I was in middle school and even, you know, high school, but really middle school, I was thinking about just like what was important to me as a middle schooler. And then like also like what was important to me as a high schooler. And I was thinking about, you know, something as simple as makeup, right? Like the way that we did our makeup in high school, I didn't wear makeup in middle school, but um, in high school. Like we, it was terrible. It was absolutely terrible, right? But we didn't have YouTube videos where we could perfect it. We didn't have like Instagram where we, you know, were face tuning our faces and like doing all of this stuff, you know, like we didn't have all of that. And so I was talking to her. I was like, I, I can't imagine what kind of pressure that feels like when, you know, at that age, you're really trying to figure out who you are. Yeah. And, you know, you just want to fit in and you just want to figure out who you are. And, and, and then on top of it, you now have this pressure of like, you have to look a certain way and like, oh, you didn't contour your nose today. Mm. You know, like <laughs> there's just all of this pressure. And I was, I was talking to my mom, but like, I can't even imagine. Yeah. And so then now it's like, yeah, you throw in sustainability. Of course, you know, I care about the planet and I care about people being treated well and being paid a living wage but then like you also have this very real everyday feeling of I see my friends every day you know or I have this feeling every day I'm wanting to fit in it's like you know sometimes I think it could be so removed like you care about climate you care about people but it's so removed but like that feeling of every day you want to fit in or every day you want to look a certain way or every day you know you want to feel good about yourself like it's I, I, I can imagine that it'd be really hard to choose something else over that feeling of acceptance yeah This brings me to why I wanted to talk with you and why I wanted to have this conversation because I think for the most part when it comes to sustainable fashion brands or purpose-driven brands, there is such a focus on wanting to create the best product that does the least amount of harm to people and planet. Especially right now with so many people skeptical about greenwashing, I think that brands are focusing so heavily on trying to prove that that they aren't greenwashing, that they are sustainable, that they're completely ignoring their customer touch points and their customer experience both on and offline. This is something that fast fashion brands aren't experiencing in the same way, right? Like they don't have an issue with marketing themselves. They don't have an issue with, you know, meeting their customer, meeting their community where they are. And I think like for sustainable brands, it can be a little weird because the whole idea is like not to to promote overconsumption and, you know, wear what you have and, and take care of what you have. Don't buy new. But if you have to buy a new buy us, and so because of that whole thought process and ethos, I think that brands kind of shy away from marketing themselves or really like actually creating a strategy that is truly a strategy and not just posting on Instagram or like sending out a random email, you know? Yeah. I think it's important. And this is why I always talk about like the psychology of why we buy, because I think it's so interesting, but it's also really important to think about and to consider as, as a sustainable fashion brand that being sustainable, being a purpose-driven brand alone is not going to be is not necessarily going to be why people buy from you. You know, there are so many factors that go into it. Yeah. The price point and the size accessibility are incredibly important. But what's also important is the psychology behind it of why we buy what we buy. How we think a product is going to make us feel or 
how we think a product is going to make other people perceive us or how we think a product is going to enhance our life in in some way is incredibly important in the purchasing decision. And I don't think sustainable fashion brands in mass think about that when they're thinking about their strategies and how they're communicating with their customers or their community and how they're positioning their brand in the market. I've been thinking a lot about what would happen if sustainable fashion took a page from fast fashion's marketing playbook. Okay, maybe we don't have to take the whole page. Maybe you can just take like a piece of page or or a half a page or something (laughs) like that. But I'm just curious, you know, what would happen if sustainable fashion attempted to be a little bit more strategic with their marketing and make themselves more desirable, especially to a younger generation? I'm definitely not talking about promoting overconsumption or mass production, but I am curious to know, you know, like we see that there are other reasons of why people buy. I mean, think about the pandemic, you know, we were in the middle of a pandemic, nowhere to go. People had less money and yet fast fashion companies saw record profits in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, that shows you right there that there's there's a reason why people are buying these things. And it's not just because it was made with less water, it was made with a sustainable material, eco-friendly material, or because, you know, fill in the blank. There's more to the conversation, there's more to the equation than simply how it was made. In order for sustainable fashion to really become the norm, there have to be options for people to buy, which means that these companies need to exist, which means that they need to get sales in order to continue to exist, yeah. they need to be able to scale in a way that people are able to buy them, that they scale in such a way that not that they become this massive enterprise, right? But that they're that they're big enough, large enough to be an alternative to what's currently out there. Yeah. I really wanted to chat with you about this because not only do you have an extensive amount of knowledge when it comes to marketing, but you've worked with really large iconic brands and you also have extensive knowledge when it comes to sustainability. So you're really walking, you know, in both worlds, which is really valuable in sort of zooming out and looking at the whole picture and seeing like, can something be applied to something else? Maybe not exactly in the same way, definitely not in the same exact way, but are there principles, are there ideas, are there certain pieces of what's currently happening that can be applied to sustainable fashion to build community with a new audience. So I don't know. What are your thoughts? Am I crazy? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, diving into the psychology of why people buy things. People buy things first because of how they make them feel. And second, because of how they make them look. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, you would, you would think it would be how people, how something makes them look, but that is incredibly subjective. So you can go into a dressing room, um, having a bad day, not feel great about yourself, pull on a great pair of jeans and be like, oh, I look terrible. Maybe those jeans look great on you, but it's subjective. It's how you're feeling, right? Um, People buy things on impulse, but they don't, but that impulse doesn't come from nowhere. Um, That impulse can be, you know, I, somebody asked me like, you know, how do you shop sustainably? And I was like, you, you pause, like you, you pause and you think about it. Like you put something in that cart. And then you kind of go away and do your emails for 10 minutes and you think about why am I buying this thing? Am I buying it because the guy I want to call didn't call? Am I, I'm waiting for him to call and I need something to do. Am I doing it because I saw it on, it was marketed to me on the internet. Am I doing it because it's like the, the, the thing that is missing in my closet. Am I doing, you know, so it's really about um, kind of being intentional, but we, it's very difficult to change human behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and no one is ever going to have their behavior changed by somebody saying like, do this differently. Right. Otherwise right. there'd be like no alcoholism. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. No more drinking for you. And they, right. and, and, you know, suddenly they don't drink. Um, that's just not how humans work from a psychological perspective. Mm-hmm. What humans inherently want is community and connection and to feel that they belong Mm -hmm. and that they are a part of something. Mm -hmm. 
So that is why I am, my friend Maxine Badoff from the New Standard Institute always is is the person who um, kind of led me away from the word consumer or even customer, Mm. because those are really transactional words. Um, And there's a great thing that she does in, um, I think it's in her book, Unraveled, where she talks about the origins of that word consumer. And it's like some old white dude, like who was a marketer created that word so that brands could think of their customers as transactional. Wow. So what I try to think of, and I really urge brands that I work with to do is to think of your, of the people who are interested in you, the people who have been your customers, the people that fill up a shopping cart and, and never actually purchase anything. That's your community, right? And that that's digital that's physical. That's everybody, you know, mixed in with that as well. That's everyone that your company touches. That's your community. So if you start thinking of them as a community, rather than people you're just trying to sell stuff to, you start to be able to kind of widen this embrace and bring people in. Mm -hmm. And what do I mean when I say that from like a nuts and bolts marketing perspective, if you're thinking of somebody as a consumer, the only thing you are allowed to send them is here's your discount code. Here's your coupon. Here's the new thing that you need to get before it runs out. Mm-hmm. Hey, here's something you left in your cart. Hey, I'm going to follow you around the internet with this like marketing hack so that every time you go onto another website, you see my dress, right? Mm-hmm. That is treating someone like a consumer. Treating somebody like community means that when something is happening inside of your company, you share. When something is um, exciting in the world of what you're trying to do, if it's sustainability, if it's um, equal wages, if it's women's rights, you're communicating with your community. You're in, you, and then you're finding ways to invite your community in. And that's not just UGC, right? That is asking them questions, that's polling, that's taking things in, that's creating, um, uh, I'm a part of an organization called I Am A Voter, and they have done such a good job of this, of creating a nonpartisan community where it's just the only thing they're asking people to do is register to vote, mm-hmm. get their friends to register to vote, and then when voting day comes, vote. So mm-hmm. the way that they're able to do that is just by continuing to share information, challenging people to share more information, um, challenging people to share simple information. Mm. And that's actually a really incredible way, I think, of being able to kind of expand the voice of your brand and pull people in. And the other thing we know about Gen Z, which we haven't talked about yet, right now we're talking about like what they don't do, right? Yeah. What they do do is they love community. They love to be a part of something. They love to know things before other people. They love to absorb information. I think that's the most incredible thing about Gen Z, which we never talk about, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, and then their ability to spread information because they're digitally native and they understand the system, right? right? So (laughs) it's actually, I think we're just, and I think it goes back to the way we're trying to do things is to, um, you know, use an old model with a new generation. And I think in a lot of ways we need to follow their lead and and listen a bit. Yeah, it's like fast fashion brands are definitely paying attention to their customer, their community, you know, what they like, what they don't like, where they're spending their time, what they value, all of that. They're paying attention to that and they are being strategic about how they then communicate their message, you know, which we don't agree with, which is like buy everything, Um, but they're being strategic about that. And I think sustainable fashion brands definitely... They aren't. You're right. They're using an old model where they're just kind of like, this is what we do. You like it. You don't. But it's like, no, you got to meet them where they are. Mm. We were talking about this earlier. I think brands are a little apprehensive to dive into marketing and maybe they understand the value and they see the value, but it feels a little weird because as a purpose-driven brand, the whole idea is not to promote overconsumption, but then at the same time, you're a business and you have to make sales. So how can purpose-driven brands approach marketing in a way that is in alignment with their values? Mm. You know, I, I do, I do think it is about ways to communicate. that are not just about selling. It is about creating relationship. 
you know, one of the most innovative things I've seen is Christy Dawn, who um, they, they've been working with regenerative farms in India. Mm-hmm. And it's very, um, in order to expand regenerative farming, there's an enormous amount of, um, of, of upfront cost to changing that soil to where it needs to be. And so they created something that I, I, I just saw it um, a day or two ago where it's land stewardship. So you pay, I think it's $200. And then when that harvest comes in, that cotton harvest comes in, you then get credit on their website wow. to, and you know, it may, um, Christy John may lose money on this or they may make money on this, but yeah. it has yet to be seen. But the upfront costs to the farmer have been paid, which allows Christy John to expand that amount of land that is sequestering carbon, that is um, creating more biodiversity, that is capturing more water. And so you as the land steward get to own that too. That is, yeah. you know, and so creating a language of reciprocity, which is which is very different than the old model that we're talking about, which is like, hey, here's a sale, here's yeah. a coupon, 15% off, yeah. you know, get it while it lasts. And then they can tell that story. Oh my gosh, that's brilliant. That's so brilliant because it's 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 such a great idea from a sustainability standpoint of being able to expand what it is that you're doing, but also from a marketing standpoint and really getting your your community involved and feeling like they're a part of something. Now all of a sudden your communications aren't just about a new sale or about something, you know, like a, a collection or something like that. It's about what's happening on the farm. That's literally so genius. <laughs> It is. They're great people. And it's, I love that they are constantly thinking um, differently and really trying to be in reciprocity and, and in relationship with, um, with the planet. And they understand that it gives us so much and, and, and to try to repair those disconnections for people, because there is a disconnection for us of, I think, um, you know, I, I do a lot of public speaking. And one of the things I always talk about is I like one of the things I say um, when I'm speaking to kind of a, a general audience who isn't a sustainability audience, as I ask people to raise their hands, if they think fashion is an agricultural industry. And I promise you, I don't even think I've ever gotten half the hands up in the air wow. because we're, we have divorced ourselves from the idea that we are connected mm-hmm. um, because we are directly, our purchases are directly connected to extraction on the planet. So it's got to be about how do we how do we repair how do we regenerate those um, connections and those relationships. I love that. So using the Christy Dawn project as an example, how much is the quote unquote right amount of information to share with your community? Because there's a lot of content. Like if you're thinking about the Christy Dawn, you know their their project. There's a lot of content that you can share there. Um, and you know really any brand like with whatever they're working on, there's a ton of stuff that they can share there. But there's also this point where it's like you're sharing a little bit too much because it's so nuanced that your community might not necessarily understand what it, what you're talking about. Mm. So how much information should a brand or a company share about their sustainability initiatives or the projects that they're working on so that they can be transparent and you know their community can feel like they're going on that journey with them, but they're not overwhelming them? I think this is the place where we marry these intentions with technology. Like mm. this is the place for that, right? If you look at big companies, they think about SEO, they think about um, email marketing, they think about their Instagram, they think about influencer relationships. And then what they do is they surgically look at data, right? It's A-B testing, it is um, preferences, it's all of these things. So they're really data mining and mapping and looking at this. And I think it's important that this is the place where we can use the technology. Let's make sure on one hand, and, and I agree with you because there is, a, and I want to be really clear, there's a real opportunity for greenwashing here. And I am not the, I am not the industry police, but what I will say is that what we're looking for is for people to have, this works if people have good intentions. It also probably works if people have bad intentions, but I'm speaking for the people who have good intentions out there <laughs> um, and who are speaking from a place of authenticity you know, use your authenticity, use your true voice, use 
um, your interest in community. Use what you have that makes you inherently you and inherently unique. Don't look around at everybody else. And then look at the tools that are offered by connective technology, right? And see where that person, see where your community is living, see where they like to be spoken to, see what they, see how they absorb information best. Because what you're describing of the like onslaught of information, to me, what that is, is just like throw spaghetti at the wall marketing, right? That's not that it, that's not smart marketing. That's just, I don't know what to do. So I'm going to ram all these messages down your throat. Mm. I think take your intentional crafted perspective on the world, take your, take your authenticity and then turn that authenticity on in terms of reach by looking for where your community is mm. and how they like to be spoken to. Cause that information is out there right? That's, that information is out there. Mm -hmm. Well, true to the name of the podcast, I wanted to transition and ask you to share your crash course lessons on how fashion brands can create strategic marketing strategies that not only center their values of sustainability, but also connect and engage with their community. But before we do that, I really wanted to ask you about something that we're seeing a lot of lately. And that is, we're seeing a lot of brands take an interesting approach to talking about sustainability with their with their communities by basically saying we're not sustainable and these are all the reasons why we're not sustainable and this is how we're working towards getting there mm. and I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on this strategy or on this tactic do you think that this is wise yeah do you think that this is a, a good thing do you think that this is a way for brands to just kind of get ahead of cancel culture or get ahead of being called out <laughs> for not being sustainable um do you think that this is like uh i guess coming from a place of we truly are trying our best or coming from a place of let's just say something before someone says something about us mm. um so yeah i'm curious to know your thoughts on this tactic because we're seeing more and more brands do this and it's kind of becoming like a thing <laughs> my company does not just work with brands who where sustainability is their focus that's not what we do. And in fact, a lot of what we do is working with companies who are just starting on that journey. Love it. And that is the scariest place for any company to be, right? Is to be like, oh my God, we've been working on saving water, but we totally forgot to work on chemicals and you know land management and, what, and, and supply chain. And oh my God, if we talk about how much water we've saved, everybody's going to go, yeah, but you know, all of this stuff. Right. And so the, the thought and the theory, and I still ascribe to it, is transparency and saying, hey, we hear you. Mm -hmm. These things are important, right? Because the first step of this, it's almost like 12-step program or something. Like the first step is acknowledgement of the fact that you, that there's a problem mm -hmm. and that you are a part of the problem, right? And so that takes an enormous amount of like, when I work with corporate companies, it takes an enormous amount to get them to like over that line. And it's such a brave place because a lot of these companies are public or they are um, very heavily funded or they, you know, they, there's, you know, tons and tons of employees and you're worried about, um, you know, not disrupting the system so that you're protecting livelihoods. Right. right. And which is, which is also important. Mm -hmm. So what I have urged people to do, and this is my philosophy, and I'm sure other people have different philosophies about this. Mine is transparency because somebody is going to find you out. You know, that mm -hmm. is the world that we live in. Everybody is like a super sleuth, right? Like everybody is NCIS. <laughs> um, so I... What I like to say to people is, okay, let's look at where you are. And you don't have to like, you don't have to get down to the like gigaton of whatever. But what you need to say is, hey, we've been really working on water and we're very proud of that. Our next things we really need to focus on are land management and chemistry and um, worker wellness. And here are the steps that we're going to take. And here's the thing to look for as like a smart consumer is, by this by this date, we will, we hope to, our goal is to have done this, right? Mm -hmm. And goals are great, 
but you need to continue as a company, you need to continue communicating about where you are to those goals. Mm -hmm. So if you set some, if you set goals, and this is something I work with companies on all the time. If your goals are 2025 goals, that's fine. But every six months you need to communicate on where you're at. Hey, Mm -hmm. we're on track to meet this 2025 goal about, you know, getting 90% of our supply chain to organic cotton. We've, we've gotten 25% there. We're so excited. We, we expect that by the end of the year, we'll be at 32%. You know, these, these are the kinds of things that help you to, A, it helps your company to actually know where it is, right? If you are measuring these things, because for years and years and years, these things were not measured, right? right. There was not a reason to measure them. There was not a regulatory reason. There wasn't a customer reason. Customers mm-hmm. weren't asking. They weren't asking like, how much of your supply chain makes a living wage? Nobody right. was asking that, right? right. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so, what's really interesting too is I'm I'm kind of a policy nerd, and one of the things that's starting to happen is that policy is starting to be crafted um, around corporate disclosure about these things. So, I think we're going to see many more of the big corporate companies starting to have to be transparent about these things. So, they're actually taking the opportunity now. Because there's legislation in the EU, there's legislation up in um, in a lot of different states, New York and California, also federal, uh, nationally in the United States, where these things are going to be like, we don't know how much you're going to have to open up the kimono, but it's going to have to at least get untied. So people are trying to get kind of starting to get ahead of it. The, also, the FTC has said that they're reviewing their um, greenwashing paradigms. So that's going to start becoming something. I think you're going to really start seeing that. Um, they're going to crack down on um, Instagram and Facebook, especially, mm-hmm. um, and with digital marketing. Yeah. So th- those are all things like the change is starting to come. Yeah. Yeah. I think where brands miss the mark on this is that follow-up. Mm-hmm. You know, they have this lofty goal for the future, but very rarely is there a follow-up to say, all right, so this is our goal for, you know, 2030. And this is what we're going to do this year. This is what we're going to do the next year. This is what we're going to do the year after that. Like, these are all the steps that we're going to take in order to reach that goal in 2030. And then not only are these the things that we're going to do, but here's an update on what we achieved. Here's an update on what we need to work on. Here's an update of how we're going to pivot and how we're going to adjust so that we can meet that goal. I think that that's the piece that is often missing. Yeah in the conversation and in the quote unquote transparency of it all is like, you know, you have this lofty goal, but how are you doing on that goal? Are you aligned to meet that goal? Yeah. Are there changes being made? Like (laughs) what's happening, you know? So let's transition and let's talk about these crash course lessons. So for those who may be listening and they may not have a massive marketing budget to put towards influencer marketing or digital marketing or, you know, anything like that, how can they create a strategy that is effective, but also efficient and doesn't break the bank? The first thing I always send people back to is like kind of marketing 101. What is your brand DNA? Who are you? What are you in the world to do? What are you in the world to say? How does your product relate back to that? And so who are you doing it for? Who wants it? You have to know why you exist and why what you have is important. You have to listen as much as you speak. And and what I mean by that is read the comments, be aware, like start conversation and see what comes back and be engaged in the conversation. Put your heart and soul into customer service to respond in a way that you would to someone in your community, because that's what you're trying to build. And then start getting really creative. The best strategy, if you have no money, is not to try to compete with the big guys. The best strategy, if you have no money, is to find your community. Hmm. You find your community, not through big, you know, like big acts or big, um, you know, pouring big swaths of money into, you know, advertising or whatever. You do it by finding the people that you that want what you have, that have been looking for what you have. Mm-hmm. Um, and then figuring out what they like to do, who they like to hang out with, 
what are your interests? What are your hobbies? Like how, how do you marry that? How do you start creating a community? So I think for smaller brands, I always urge you to like create a community who cares about stuff. Um, one of my favorite examples is Thousand Fell. Oh, I love them. Um, who are there. I, I love Chloe and Stuart. They're two of my favorite people. They're so brilliant. They are. And they really amazing are. is during COVID, what they did is started a, um, a Slack channel with other people who cared about the circular economy. And so they would do the, and then they would find guests to come and talk and they would like, and pool information and share information. And that group got through COVID together. You know, I mean, it was a real thing and it was just, it was so brilliant. It was like using this thing that everybody has for work, but using it for something that they really cared about outside of work. I really like Chloe and Stuart and the whole Thousand Fell team. Yeah. I've actually been a part of a few of their events and they've been a, a part of a few of the a few things that the Sustainable Fashion Forum has done as well. All right, so I want to ask you one more question before we go. And that is, what do you wish more purpose-driven brands knew about marketing sustainability? I wish there was more of a recognition of how connected we all are and how connected we are to this planet. I think we, um, we think of these things and even in the way you and I have been speaking about it, we've been speaking about this as though um, brands and what they produce are divorced from being a part of the ecosystem, right? And at the end of the day, we need to figure out a way to make this industry regenerative rather than extractive. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, for me, what I wish is that more companies were in acknowledgement of that and of how they will become part of the solution. Because I actually think that there is, um, there's a general will to be a part of that from a community perspective that people would, if, if brands could say, Hey, we're, we're part of the problem and here's how we're going from extractive to regenerative mm-hmm. come with us. I generally think that people will. Um, I think there's a lot of, um, I think sometimes there can be environmental malaise or hopelessness because the problem seems so big and you as a citizen are not going to recycle it away or, um, you know, donate it away or, you know, you're not going to, or take shorter showers in a way. There's just (laughs) no, you know, um, it's really about these bigger companies, um, And, you know, at the end of the day, companies exist to sell us things that we want to buy. Um, And if we set the paradigm as citizens for the conditions under which we will buy them, meaning that we need them to be regenerative, we need them to be environmentally conscious, we need them to um, be made under living uh, wages and good working conditions, then people will have, those big companies will have to sell those things to us. Um, and have them made that way. So 1000%. All right. Well, that's all the questions I have for you. Thanks so much for hanging out with me. So much fun. It was really lovely to get to meet you. Now that we've gotten the business of the podcast out of the way, we can get to work on those normalized connection bumper stickers we talked about. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening and be sure to subscribe to the podcast and rate and review. And follow us on Instagram at the Sustainable Fashion Forum to see what episodes are coming up next.